It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Kennedy. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Harris Faulkner. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, September 16th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The president of China left his country for the first time since the early days of the pandemic and attended a meeting with Russia's president, a summit Iran was at as well. The world that respects human dignity, the rest of the world that is prepared to trade on a fair and reciprocal basis, the rest of the world is united. That's some 70, 75 percent of the global economy is on the side of freedom. We should reinforce that. We speak with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I'm Chris Foster. Anything can happen and the polls are tightening in some races, but previous predictions of a Republican red wave in November are a little less loud now. Are Democrats now going to peak at the right moment? It's always historically a tough year, that first midterm for president in office. But um, the winds seem to be shifting and helping the Democrats right now. We speak with Fox News host and chief legal correspondent Shannon Breen. And I'm Janice Dean. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The presidents of China and Russia met up this week at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization at a summit in Uzbekistan. While there, China's Xi Jinping held a bilateral meeting with Russia's Vladimir Putin, after which she said through a translator, China is willing to make efforts with Russia to assume the role of great powers. In the face of changes in the world, times and history, China is willing to work with Russia to demonstrate the responsibility of a major country play a leading role and inject stability into a turbulent world. Putin praised China for taking what he called a balanced position on the Ukrainian crisis and said of the U.S. attempts to create a unipolar world have acquired an ugly form. He defended China's stance over Taiwan, as also heard here through a translator. For our part, we stand firm on the one China principle. We condemn provocations of the U.S. and its satellites in the Taiwan Strait. Before Russia invaded Ukraine, the two leaders announced a friendship without limits. Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn told Fox News Thursday. It proves the adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this is a marriage of convenience between the People's Republic of China and Russia, but they're both autocrats. There was another country at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting, Iran. And U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said just this week negotiations on a new Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, addressing Iran's nuclear program, are failing. Uh, Iran um, seems either um, unwilling or unable to do what is necessary to reach an agreement, uh, and they continue to uh, try to introduce extraneous issues to, uh, to the negotiation that make an agreement um, uh, less likely. But certainly what we've seen in the last... Uh, week is a, a step backward away from the uh, likelihood of any kind of near-term agreement. And at the same time, Iran signed a memorandum of obligation to join the Shanghai organization with China and Russia. So this administration has made concessions of extraordinary proportions in an effort to get that deal done. They were prepared to give a trillion dollars to the Iranians and the deal itself would have permitted the Iranians to eventually develop a nuclear program. Mike Pompeo is the former Secretary of State and former head of the CIA. When I hear Secretary Blinken say that he doesn't think it's likely it's going to happen, it reminds me how bad an idea it would have been to take that deal. Clearly, the Iranians had no intention of complying with it if they had, and now have made clear to us 
their intention to build out their nuclear weapons program. It means this administration must get serious at reimposing and continuing to enforce all of the sanctions we had in place and preparing to do all that it takes to make sure that the Islamic Republic of Iran, that regime there, never has the capability to conduct a nuclear test or to build out a nuclear weapons program. There have been multiple reports, as you know, that one of the bigger holdups in this was their refusal to allow the IAEA to further investigate some trace uranium particles found at some of these undeclared sites. Um, this summer, after President Biden went to the Middle East, Iranian officials announced that they did, in fact, now have the technical capability to build a nuclear weapon, but had not yet decided if they would do so. You kind of referenced it, but what do we do now with this information? There are sanctions in place already, right? So what should be next? So three ideas. First, there are sanctions, but we have not enforced them these last two years. Mm. The Chinese Communist Party is purchasing crude oil for cash. Other countries have begun to be able to provide wealth to the Iranians, even while the sanctions remain. Sanctions are worthless if not enforced. So step one, global massive enforcement. Just as we had a maximum pressure campaign for two and a half years of the Trump administration, that's the path. It will starve the beast and at the very least reduce the capacity to conduct missile tests, tear around the world, and make it harder for them to spin their centrifuges, which are key to develop their nuclear weapons program. Second, we need to make clear to them the enormous cost if they begin to proceed down a path toward nuclear weapon. We, I'm happy if we want to do that privately, but we should make very clear to them that this regime cannot possibly survive with a nuclear weapon. Finally, we have to make sure we get all of that right in the context of the Abraham Accords and my understanding of the Middle East, mm. which is that if we don't do one and two that I just laid out, it won't just be Iran with a nuclear weapon. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, other nations will feel compelled to begin to develop their capabilities so that they can protect themselves from Iran. And our friend Israel, our security partner in the region, Israel, the rightful homeland of the Jewish people, Israel, I promise you, we need to stand next to Israel, making clear that our two nations will not tolerate a nuclear weapon. And if we do those things, I'm convinced we can change the calculus for the Ayatollah and for President Raisi and force them down a path which never gives them any incentive to continue their nuclear weapons work. Hmm. Your thoughts on the Shanghai Cooperation Organization this week. Um, Iran signed a memorandum to join. Xi Jinping said China and Russia will work together as great powers. Uh, after this meeting uh, with Putin, British intelligence said it appeared Russia has put Iranian drones to use, Russia's deepening ties with North Korea. You see all of this. What is happening as these adversaries get closer? And what should our response be? Do we deepen our ties with our allies? Is that our response? Fascinating question, because if you think about it, you have just identified every friend of the Chinese Communist Party. There's just a handful, just the Iranians, just the Venezuelans, just the Cubans, just the North Koreans, and now Vladimir Putin himself. The rest of the world, the world that respects human dignity, the rest of the world that is prepared to trade on a fair and reciprocal basis, the rest of the world is united. That's some 70, 75 percent of the global economy is on the side of freedom. We should reinforce that. And if the Iranians want to pick the communist side, if they want to side with the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party should suffer from that as well. And instead, this administration has allowed China and Iran and Russia to trade freely, to engage in activities that we don't allow anyone else to. 
That's creating wealth for the bad guys. And we, we can stop this. We can use the might of the free world to impose real cost on nations who choose to behave in such a malign way. The fact that we were negotiating with the Iranians through the Russians, while the Iranians were selling the Russians technology, hardware, drones, that was killing Ukrainians, Ukrainian civilians, suggests that this administration doesn't have the right end of the stick. They don't understand that we are an exceptional nation and we should defend our value set everywhere and always. One of the biggest responses to U.S. sanctions over the years, it appears, is countries like Iran and China and Russia saying, okay, we're just not going to deal in U.S. dollars anymore. We're going to operate and accept each other's currencies. I'm aware I'm oversimplifying this, and the U.S. dollar is still the preferred reserve currency, but it is declining. And Saudi Arabia this year said they were considering using China's currency to trade oil with China. What are the security implications as countries, adversaries, even maybe allies, move away from the dollar? Played correctly by the United States and our ally nations, the likelihood of that happening is exceedingly low. It is true that sanctions create risk. We didn't make the Europeans happy. They wanted the JCPOA. We wanted freedom. And so they threatened to go around the U.S. system in SWIFT. In fact, they couldn't. We were told that American sanctions alone wouldn't work. We took the Iranian economy to the lowest levels it had ever been in. And when the Biden administration came in, the Iranian economy will grow faster in 2022 than the American economy. Mm. We can protect and preserve the dollar as the reserve currency because it is the one place that every nation in the world knows you can trade with America in American dollars and you will be repaid. And this is a stable, good country. They know that if they do a deal with the Russians or the Chinese, that it is the Chinese political system, not the Chinese commercial system they'll be addressing. We should protect the dollar. We can do so in a smart way. The sanctions regime will not be the thing that undermines America as the reserve currency. And while you correctly point out that there are more countries prepared to conduct international commerce outside of the dollar environment, that number is still tiny and fractional and insignificant today. I want to ask you about Russia. Some politicians and council members, even a former member of Russia's parliament, have started questioning Vladimir Putin publicly over the war in Ukraine. Uh, St. Petersburg councillor I was reading even called for Putin to resign. I understand in Russia that's you don't do that. Uh, when you combine that with Ukraine's counteroffensive wins as of late, what will happen? Does, does Putin respond by simply getting angrier and going harder? My sense of this since the beginning has been that those who fear provoking Vladimir Putin misunderstand him. As, as my, as my <laughs> grandfather would have said, he's done been provoked. And you, can, <laughs> and you can prove it, right? You can prove it with the tens of thousands of lives that have been lost in just a matter of months. This is a man who is intent upon his mission. And the only thing that will stop him is changing his perception of risk. And so whether it's the Ukrainian advances or the political actors who are now beginning to say, you know, he may have led us down a really dangerous path for the Russian people. We need to continue. We need to reinforce. We need to continue to urge Europe, whose battle this is in the first instance, to be serious about its own security. And when we get that right, we will decrease the probability that Putin will continue this butcherous campaign. I, I get asked often, you didn't ask this question quite, but I get asked, Mike, would this have happened if you were still a secretary of state, if President Trump was still the president? And I can't answer that because it's a counterfactual. But what I can say is it didn't happen on our watch. For four years, Vladimir Putin didn't invade Europe. He invaded it on President Obama's watch. 
He invaded it on President Biden's watch. What changed? Hmm. Well, it wasn't Vladimir Putin that changed. It was his perception of risk. And so the singular focus for Europe and for the West needs to be to change the risk calculus as perceived by Vladimir Putin. And so to think we're going to have an off-ramp or a negotiated solution uh, is folly. It misunderstands the evil of Vladimir Putin, and it misunderstands the risk to Ukraine, to Moldova, to the Baltic states, to Europe, and indeed to people here at home who can see that this war has cost the United States dearly already. On China and Taiwan, I want your sense of a timeline. We've had quite a few U.S. leaders go to Taiwan lately. China obviously doesn't like that. Uh, We've seen their reaction militarily. Are you convinced China is about to do something? And what is your sense of when? Well, I'm I'm headed. I was in Taiwan a few months ago. I'm headed back there myself before too long. Um, Timelines are really the, the hardest question to answer. Who would have guessed that the Berlin Wall would have come down when it did? The answer is no one. Uh, what what one does is one does the things they can do to prepare to prevent our adversaries from acting. It's the model of strength, peace through strength. It's the model President Reagan had and the one that we executed. With respect to Taiwan, uh, we should do the same. We should be acknowledging Taiwan as an independent nation, and we should be preparing them and providing them the intelligence and tools they need to protect their own sovereignty, building out alliances with India, with South Korea, with Japan, with Australia, with nations in the region who are prepared to provide support to Taiwan, and then demarcating for Xi Jinping the actual cost that we will impose on him if he heads down his timeline. His timeline is pretty clear. Uh, He's going to have an election or what stands for an election in October where he will be declared leader for life inside of the Chinese Communist Party. And he has said in the next handful of years, he wants to, quote, reunite, end of quote, Taiwan. We should never admit that there's such a thing as reunification. Taiwan has never been part of China. And we should work fast now, today, to prevent Xi Jinping from doing to Taiwan precisely what Vladimir Putin did to Ukraine. He got one free bite at the apple before NATO responded. We should make sure that Xi Jinping knows he will not get one free bite on Taiwan. One more, if I may. I know you have to go on the home front. Your thoughts on the FBI and DOJ search of Mar-a-Lago. We hear claims, obviously, of classified information being stored there. In the context of you being former head of CIA, are the claims or reports troubling to you, or are you waiting to see and learn more? Oh, goodness, no. Uh, raiding a former president's home, someone who could be your future political opponent, is an action that has never happened before and presents has enormous implications for America's republic. If there's classified documents there, they shouldn't have been there. They weren't authorized to be there. No former secretary of state, no former secretary of defense. Indeed, no former president should retain classified information in a place it is not authorized to be. Our soldiers, our sailors, our airmen, our Marines all depend on the protection of classified information. And I get it. Sometimes you open a classified document and you say, oh, my goodness, why was this classified? I get it. If it's classified, it needs to be protected. If it shouldn't be classified, it ought to be declassified. And so it is possible for both things to be true. It is possible that there are documents down there that shouldn't have been. If so, they need to be returned. It is also the case that the FBI and the Justice Department not continuing to engage to make sure that they got those documents back to their rightful place, if in fact there are documents down there improperly, by conducting a raid of the home of a former president is both unprecedented and dangerous for our republic. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, thank you so much for your time. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Have a great day. 
Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This is Janice Dean with your Fox News commentary coming up. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been sending migrants north to New York, Chicago, and Washington, D.C., telling us here on the Fox News Rundown last month he's trying to alleviate the strain on border towns. I'm helping the local communities uh, by busing the, the migrants out of these local communities and sending them up to the northeast where they have self-identified as sanctuary cities where they want to welcome in uh, any illegal immigrant, and I'm more than happy to accommodate them. Some of those migrants were dropped off in front of Vice President Kamala Harris's official residence in Washington after she said on NBC's Meet the Press, The border is secure. Carla Bastios rushed to meet those migrants with the volunteer group Sanctuary DMV. This is very sad because we're making a humanitarian crisis, we're making it political, and a lot of time and resources are being spent and alleviating the chaos that the politics of it is creating. Some of the migrants sent to Chicago were then sent onto the suburbs. Burr Ridge, Illinois Mayor Gary Grasso, says he got no heads up. They are not the problem. They are, they are behaved. There's no issue with them at all. Um, uh, they're looking for school opportunities. We're inquiring as to whether or not they can be employed by our local businesses, uh, if that's an option. We don't even know, frankly, how long they're going to stay. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has sent two chartered planes full of migrants from his state to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Massachusetts State Representative Dylan Fernandez says they got no heads up the planes were coming. These families then walked several miles to Martha's Vineyard Community Services because there was no one there alerted to pick them up. Um, at community services, we brought them to um, the high school as a staging area and then ultimately to a shelter in Egertown where they are now. In New York City, thousands of migrants still there, at least for now, are in the shelter system or put up in hotels. Every city is, is reacting uh, differently to this. But here in D.C., the mayor has declared a national, uh, excuse me, a local public emergency, a health emergency because of the folks who have showed up here in D.C., and saying the systems will be overwhelmed. Shannon Breams, the host of Fox News Sunday. And, you know, there is the ongoing um, conversation like these are human beings. These are people with children. They are dragged, you know, along. And it's hard to look at them and not have compassion and think, you know, these are people caught up in the middle of this conversation that has turned exceptionally political. But cities where that are away from the border that are now getting the influx of these immigrants are quickly realizing how much of a strain it puts on their system. And many of these areas, though, have declared, self-declared themselves to be sanctuary cities or states. And so um, they probably haven't felt the brunt of what, you know, Texas, Arizona, those folks right at the border are going to feel. Um, so the folks who are sending them north, when they land there and the local officials declare an emergency and say this is overwhelming and unacceptable, say, well, that's what's happening to our little border towns every day. So it seems like the two sides are just going to talk past each other. It is going to remain political for now, but these are real people caught in the middle. Uh, President Biden still gets uh, poor marks as far as polling goes on immigration, but overall his numbers have improved uh, about to where they were at the beginning of this year and not where they cratered to this summer. And uh, and then looking at some midterm races, a lot of those polls are tightening up. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if this, this just goes to show that people like us maybe pay attention to this stuff a little bit too early. 
Yeah, I think that polls always get tighter the closer you get to an election. So you got to take everything with a grain of salt. And Republicans, um, you know, they even earlier in the year when they had these major margins and I would talk to top leaders and they would say, we're nervous because we know that this can change. And they knew different issues would come up. And, you know, a month or two in politics is a lifetime and can make a huge difference. So there is good momentum for the Democrats right now. And for the president, listen, the numbers are still terrible. I mean, he's way upside down on every single issue on his job performance. But they're moving in the right direction. And that asks the question, are Democrats now going to peak at the right moment? It's always historically a tough year, that first midterm for a president in office. But um, the winds seem to be shifting and helping the Democrats right now. Although I thought it was interesting, the New York Times ran a, a piece earlier this week saying, you know, are, are Democrats going to get smacked in the face and surprised by polls? Almost felt like a little bit of managing expectations. So um, there's only so much we can know. And those polls capture one moment in time. It's a moving target. Enthusiasm, getting people to show up and turn out is going to make all the difference for either side. Yeah, one of those polls that's, that seems to be tightening is the, this Pennsylvania Senate race, John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz. Oz seems to be bridging a little bit of that gap. Now, they've agreed to a debate on October 5th. Uh, Fetterman's been recovering from the stroke he had in May, and Oz has been accusing him of, you know, laying too low while he's been crisscrossing the state. Now they're going to have close captioning for Fetterman's behalf. He's having some what he calls um, auditory processing problems. Um, Some Republicans are saying that Fetterman's stroke makes him, you know, a bad candidate even worse. But I wonder if there's a chance, unless he's proved to be, you know, completely just mentally incompetent somehow, uh, for this to pick up sympathy votes. A lot of people have health problems. A lot of people have loved ones with health problems. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the risk that the Republicans run in that Pennsylvania race. And it's so tricky because the Republican candidate is a doctor. He knows way more about this than most of us do. And he's going to have to find uh, that perfect line there of saying, hey, I have concerns that this person could actually physically handle the rigors of representing Pennsylvania in uh, the U.S. Senate versus um, coming off as somebody who seems heartless and is in any way potentially um, insensitive to what's going on with the Fetterman recovery. Listen, if you're a political junkie, it doesn't matter if you live in Pennsylvania or not, you're going to find a way to watch this um, debate because it's going to be unlike anything else we've ever seen. It's going to get a ton of eyeballs. And as so many states have early voting and people already making up their minds, um, these debates and pushing them back further, and some candidates are saying no debates altogether, um, they really could be difference makers in these really tight races. Yeah, you're right. I've had a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily watch a, a Pennsylvania Senate debate uh, who do follow the news and follow politics will find a way to to, to watch that one. Um, I'm told that you're interviewing South Carolina Republican uh, Senator Lindsey Graham on Fox News Sunday this week. Um, now, some Republicans are mad at him for proposing this national 15-week abortion ban uh, that some people are calling a gift to Democrats. Now, does it? But does it also tell abortion opponents, look, come out and vote for us because we're going to do this for you? I mean, it is... I have so many questions. (laughs) Yes, he is exclusively with us on Fox News Sunday this week um, because Republicans have repeatedly said this is an issue that should go back to the states. We have to overturn Roe. That's what the Supreme Court did. Now, states have a patchwork. They're doing all kinds of things from no access to abortion to unfettered access to abortion. Um, And that's what Republicans have said that they wanted for the states to be these laboratories. Now, Senator Graham is coming out and he's always pushed a 20 week federal ban. This is now 15 weeks. And he's saying it's never a bad time to be 
out there defending the unborn if you're pro-life. But you got to think political strategy because it seems like Republicans, some of them were even kind of caught off guard that he would do something when this that particular topic is not a good one, at least in the polling for Republicans right now. So there is consternation inside the party about this. Um, and some folks have publicly aired their frustration that he would do this this close to the midterm. So, yeah, I got a lot of questions. I'm sure he'll have answers. <laughs> sure he will. Um, yeah. And some Republican candidates, uh, like you said, who who are pro-life and, and had it almost prominently featured in their campaign materials and their websites have now kind of scrubbed it and said, yeah, let's maybe let's maybe talk about something else. Let's talk about the economy. Right. That's what the Republican candidates want to talk about, <laughs> right. for sure. Um, so there's a deal to not have uh, a freight rail strike that could have caused uh, a lot of havoc in the economy. Um, I can't imagine a more Joe Biden cause trains and you <laughs> and, and unions. Uh, exactly. for, for him to be excited about. He loves trains. He loves unions. This could have been a real problem for him politically, not to mention what it could have done to the economy. Yes. And at a time that they're not having good news on the economy, you know, the same day that the president was signing or celebrating the passage of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, inflation actually went up. Um, it is a tough ra- a set of numbers coming out of August. Now, gas prices are down. Everybody's cheering for that. That's fantastic. But the fact that all these other things, r- really the price of just about everything else went up in August, the gas offset still didn't stop that number from ticking up a little bit. And so we got to watch and see, um, you know, energy producers here in the U.S. say they still have their, you know, one hand tied behind the back while their administration is yelling at them to produce more and somehow crank up their refineries um, to levels that would be very beneficial. We've got Putin in Europe and that whole situation going on. So we got to hope gas prices continue trending downward because that ripples just like the trains and that, you know, supply supply line issue would have rippled to everything else. Um, Gasoline certainly does that, too. But there are plenty of economists out there across the political spectrum, uh, and many of them want to remain neutral who say the underlying fundamentals here are not good. The fact that we still have all these other core prices that are rising, inflation is still not under control. Shannon Bream, Fox News Sunday host, not going to be a stranger here on the Fox News Rundown podcast. Shannon, thanks. Good to talk to you. You got it. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. Last weekend marked the 21st anniversary of the terror attacks of September 11, 2001. And while that observation is a somber one, I witnessed something in Lower Manhattan I wanted to share with you. Standing in the area with survivors, family members, and first responders, one thing caught my attention. The dogs. They were walking through the crowd, stopping to receive pets and tummy rubs, of which there were a lot. They were therapy dogs, and their handlers crisis counselors. Janice Campbell is the president and founder of Tri-State Canine Response Team and told me that each year on September 11th, they bring teams to the ceremony at Ground Zero. We come out to just really offer our services to individuals and family members on these types of days that it's really hard to get through. The all-volunteer teams have golden retrievers, Labradors, Bedlington Terriers, and more. We don't breed differentiate as to what dog can really be a crisis response dog. It really is on the temperament. And the dogs have special talents to be able to go through the crowds of people and find who needs them the most or 
you know, whose bottom lip is quivering or a tear coming down a child's faces. The dogs really are empathetic in that way and kind of guide us to who needs them the most. So how do they train the dogs to do that? We really can't train the dogs to that. To do that, we train them for obedience, getting ready for unpredictable environments, working in large crowds, but it's the special things that the dogs have. Some dogs have it more than others, and it's a true gift that we get to see that comes back up the leash to us. They've been to three U.S. cities that have had mass shootings in just the past four months. And actually, Logan, this dog here, he was um, in Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, and also in Highland Park. Janice says the dogs know when they've helped someone. They'll look back at us and say, you know, I'd like to see this person. And then afterwards they look back like I did a good job. They can see their eyes light up and they're really happy that they were able to make that connection and make a difference. And they know the work they're doing. They really do. In New York City, Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. Time for your Fox News commentary. Janice Dean. What's on your mind? On Sunday, the 21st anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks, I was invited to attend a memorial reception with George Pataki, New York's 53rd governor. I was honored to be one of five people chosen to receive his annual Freedom Award for the advocacy I've done over the last several years on behalf of the families whose loved ones died after contracting COVID-19 in nursing homes. My husband, Sean Newman, a battalion chief with the New York City Fire Department, came with me on a day that was already filled with grief and sorrow for him. On 9-11, he lost all 12 of the men in his firehouse who were working that day as they ran into the World Trade Center before they fell to the ground. And now, over two years later, he's still mourning the loss of his parents, who both died from coronavirus during the height of the pandemic in their separate elder care facilities. But our gathering in Midtown Manhattan with Governor Pataki was uplifting, and his foundation has been committed to doing wonderful work for New Yorkers. We were surrounded by people who had lost loved ones, but have been turning their loss into something good by bringing awareness to the meaning of freedom in our country. As I was accepting the award on Sunday afternoon, I realized that there is a link to what I've been fighting for after the loss of my in-laws and the attacks on our country September 11, 2001. It is the incredible freedom we have here in the United States. That freedom was assaulted 21 years ago when the planes crashed into the buildings in Lower Manhattan, taking the lives of thousands of Americans with them, including 343 members of the FDNY. It was an attack on the American way of life that so many have died for, including the men and women who went to work that day and never came home. A part of our belief system as Americans is about how much we cherish our freedom. Unfortunately, it must be constantly defended. Today, I am thankful I live in a country where those freedoms allow us to call out injustice where we see it, even in government. Those rights gave me a voice to fight against COVID-19 policies in nursing homes following the tragic deaths of my in-laws. Deaths that have revealed not only poor governance, but abject corruption in New York State. Freedom is hard. Freedom is messy but anything less is oppression. We have a precious right as Americans that we can never let go. Everyone has a right to a voice that deserves to be heard. 
and I am grateful to use my voice on behalf of others that no longer have one. Thank you, Governor Pataki, and your foundation for celebrating democracy and freedom on a day when we all needed to hear something positive. And thank you for the incredible honor of receiving such an important award and recognition. I won't forget your kindness, and I'm grateful to you for remembering the lives we lost on 9-11 and the over 15,000 cherished souls we lost in New York nursing homes. Janice Dean, Fox News. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.